welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Welcome to a special Global Forum edition recording live and set to air later this week. For years, many have seen the religious diversity in the Middle East as an obstacle to resolving conflict there. But American Jewish Committee's International Director of Interreligious Affairs, David Rosen, believes the contrary. The shared religious heritage embodied by the Prophet Abraham should pave the way to peace. With us now to discuss how leaders have already begun to make this ideal a reality is Rabbi Rosen and Dr. Ali Rashid Al-Nuemi founder and chairman of the World Council of Muslim Communities. Gentlemen, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you, Mike. Dr. Al-Nuemi, we'll start with you. Welcome. Last year, we watched the historic signing of the Abraham Accords between Israel, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, and soon Israel was welcoming relations with Morocco and Sudan. Some have said to expand Arab-Israeli peace in the Middle East, it's not only important for countries to normalize relations with Israel, which of course is what the Accords did, It's also important for diplomats to foster interreligious relationships in the name of Abraham. What does that mean and why is that so important? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to be part of this event and to speak to such an outstanding audience. Well, from our perspective in the UAE, we don't look at the Abraham Accord as a work of diplomat and that it should stay within the diplomatic arena. No. In the UAE, we see that the Abraham Accord actually bring two nations together. And when I say two nations, I see that, you know, what happened actually on August 13th, that we started making history in this area, where I saw the engagement of all sector, of all stakeholders from the UAE side and from the Israeli side, not only politician. And this is where we see you know, the the real potential of changing the region by creating a new peace for all. So this is very important to understand it. It's not a diplomatic initiative. It's not a political initiative. It's a comprehensive, holistic initiative that will bring two nations together. And part of any nation, actually, is the religious community and the religious leaders. And here where we, we see the added value to the Abraham Accord, the real engagement of many rabbis, like my friend Rabbi Rosen, who made a great contribution actually to support this treaty, you know, to promote it, to show that they believe in it. And this is what we did also from our side. Rabbi Rosen, it sounds like he's saying religion is always in the room. Is is that what he's saying? Yes, indeed. Uh, In fact, the conflicts that have existed in the Middle East in recent history, have not in themselves been religious conflicts, but they've been, if you like, weaponized by religion, and religion has been abused. And if you want to be able to overcome all the negative stigmas of the past and perceptions, you can't just ignore that. You have to make sure that if you like, you do, I don't know, I'm not an expert in karate, but something like a karate movie, and you take, therefore, the negative energy and you transform it into the positive one. I think one of the mistakes of people in the past to have sought to address these issues has been precisely to look at them exclusively in terms of tangibles, as Dr. Ali was saying, in terms of 
diplomatic and political or territorial issues. Of course, all those are important, but there are intangibles, that's perceptions. How do we see one another? How do we perceive one another? What is our understanding of historical attachments or lack thereof on the part of the other? And therefore, we have to address these issues at the most profound level. And as Dr. Ali mentioned, our identities are rooted within religious traditions. And this not only affects the region here, it's globally the reality. If we are concerned to be able to ensure reconciliation and collaboration and cooperation between Islam, the Muslim world, and the Jewish people, the Jewish world, then we have to address the religious dimension and portray it as a source of brotherly, sisterly connectiveness rather than a source for division. So was that adequately done in the Abraham Accords? I mean, has was faith indeed a part of the dialogue in the region, or was it still purposefully left out? And also, let me just add to that, what is the danger of leaving that religious perspective out of the conversation? Well, I think the UAE certainly took a lead, and Dr. Ali al-Nuaymi is an example of the leadership from that country, which already for many years has been engaged in interreligious understanding, not exclusively with the Jewish people, but also with the Jewish people and with Judaism. And I think that understanding is there more profoundly, perhaps, within the Gulf countries than it is necessarily within Israeli society. Within Israeli society, there are other problems. That's the whole question of the relationship between religion and state and the way, in fact, often religion is politicized. So it's not always seen as, if you like, the spiritual, moral, visionary force that it should be. But I think that there is a response to the Abraham Accords and the growing understanding of the need to be able to ensure that that added dimension is there. Dr. Al-Nuemi, I'm curious, you know, I just asked, what's the danger of leaving the religious perspectives out of the conversation? But what are the risks of including them? And are those risks worth taking? Well, man, I can comment on your first question to my brother, Rabbi Rosen, related to religion and the Abraham Accord. You know, in our area, actually, religion was a victim. And here I'm saying all religion, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, and it was abused by many politicians to use religion to serve their political agenda. And here where, you know, it's the responsibility of religious leaders to have the courage and to come forward and to promote the real value that we have in all these religions that will bring us together and promote, you know, trust and love and respect between all the followers of all these religions. And coming back to your question, look, religion, either we engage religious leaders who will play a good role you know, in bringing the people together, bringing their heart, their mind, promoting love and peace, building bridges of respect between them, or they will play a bad role. And you see, if you ignore religion and you ignore the religious leaders, there is a role they will play because if they have a great influence on their follower and they reach them, they talk to them, and it's 100%. If you don't, you know, feed them with the right things, engage them, show them their role, appreciate their contribution, they will do something else. So the engagement of religious leaders is crucial, is very important, 
if we want, especially when we talk about the Middle East, you know, I said this so many times, the root of Christianity and Judaism and Islam in this area. It's not in Europe. It's not in the United States. It's not anywhere. So what you need is you need here to, you know, put the element and try to invest in the root that because these religions, their root is here, try to show the world the model of that these religions, they can live together. They can, you know, live in peace, stability, security, and prosperity for all. So it's very important to engage them. If you don't engage them, they will pay a role that will damage what we all are hoping for. Could I reiterate? Please, please. That in the past, there has been a tendency of politicians and diplomats to see because religion is very often abused, to say, well, then we don't want to engage it because it's part of the problem. But if you don't, exactly as Dr. Ali is saying, if you don't want it to be part of the problem, you have to make it part of the solution. And nature abhors a vacuum. If you don't engage the moderate, responsible leaders, then the extremists will occupy that vacuum. And that's what happened immediately after the Oslo Accords. And I would say part of the failure there was the failure to engage the religious leadership to support those peace initiatives. Therefore, the message came across to the most devout were that somehow this process was inimical to their interests and they sought to undermine it, as was indeed the case. So that's why we have to ensure that there is the positive voice of religion, of the religious traditions, supporting those political and diplomatic initiatives. So certainly interreligious understanding, knowing each other's values, principles, teachings, that's at the core of interreligious relations. But should successful interreligious relations, if we're going to incorporate religion into these important conversations, does it also include an understanding of stereotypes or tropes that one religious tradition or some in one religious tradition might teach about another? Yes, indeed. I think that's critical because I think part of the problem of the past, as I say, the weaponizing of religion in a destructive way over the course of the last almost a century has meant that young people have grown up with distorted stereotypes and misrepresentations of the other community. And if we don't address those, then we don't have a solid basis for a future relationship. And I think that was also a past failure with regards to peace initiatives. Something in this regard, I believe it's very important that we need religious leaders who have the courage to come forward and promote the great values that we have in all religion. You know, we shouldn't be hostage to the past. And we should understand that, you know, at the end, coexistence is vital for all of us. And we have to live together. So we have to look into things that bring us together. And if there is differences, we have to respect the differences and leave them aside. And as Rabbi Rosen mentioned, we have to focus on the youth and engage them on things that will bring us together. You see, in the UAE, you know, now, one of our strategy and main major objective is to promote coexistence. And this is why we are using religious leaders, we are using our teachers, our curriculum to engage in promoting this in all the school system. So the kids from you know early years, they will they will you know be part of this coexistent community that will respect others, show love to them believe in their contribution and believe that they are partner, not only as in human values or in the world, but in the nation that they are living within. 
Are there already mechanisms in place for training rabbis, training imams there in the Middle East region that echo that emphasis on coexistence? Well, actually, I'm, I'm engaging in many programs in training imam, actually, to counter extremism, to promote coexistence. We do all these things in the UAE, so we start doing it, you know, outside the UAE. So I was engaged in training some imam from Afghanistan, from the Maldives, from Horn of Africa, several countries. I have an initiative now to work on the Sahel area. So we are trying to focus on these hotspots with those extremists and to focus on those imams and engage them in a program to promote coexistence and to counter hate and extremism. Before addressing the Jewish community, and particularly here in Israel, let me just add to the comments regarding the Muslim world, because one of the most remarkable initiatives is in Morocco, which of course is then part of this historical process, and which has shown incredible leadership with regards to now introducing education about Jewish heritage in Morocco. But a good friend of AJC, of the American Jewish Committee, who has appeared at a number of our global fora is Dr. Ahmed Abadi, who is the General Secretary of the uh, Mohammedan Council of Scholars of Morocco. And when he was General Secretary of the Ministry of Religious Affairs of Morocco, he established the Institute for the Training of Imams and Women Religious Leaders, Moshidine Moshidat. And when we had an AJC mission to Morocco, it was my privilege to be the first rabbi to address that institute there and to be able to speak about the importance of coexistence. And that institute is precisely orientated towards combating extremism and promoting a leadership, both male and female, of a new generation of Muslim leaders. Here in Israel, obviously, the spectrum is enormously wide. But and while there is therefore no formal program that I know of within orthodoxy that is actually training rabbis in terms of interreligious understanding, there are definitely programs within certain orthodox as well as definitely within the reform and conservative institutions that are here. But there is an orthodox institute which actually deals generally with rabbinical graduates that is also focusing on that. And then there are lots of different interfaith initiatives and a few institutes have just been started by an orthodox operation in Efrat near Bethlehem. And therefore, obviously, within the universities, you also have people of religious training and roles and functions who are gaining a certain broader perspective. I think that within our society, the challenge is much more an intra-faith challenge than it is really an interfaith challenge. Interesting. You know, when I do think about interreligious success stories, at least from a Jewish perspective, I immediately think about Nostra Aetate, the declaration by the Roman Catholic Church 56 years ago that finally removed from church doctrine the very harmful teaching of deicide, the accusation that Jews killed Jesus. What that did for the relationship between Jews and Catholics was historic and healing. Now, I'm mindful that the Muslim and Jewish worlds don't have the same hierarchy as the Catholic Church, represented by the Vatican, but how do we go about achieving historical change and healing between our communities, which are diverse, geographically scattered? Well, engaging together, you know, I know Rabbi Rosen, many rabbi, you know, sitting together, engaging in dialogue, talking about the challenges, talking about the potential of working together. You know, when we sit together, we hear about the other from them and they hear about us from us. You know, it's not the stereotype. So I think, you know, having events that bring all these 
religious leaders together, engaging them in trying to see what's the future of this area. Where did we see the youth, the new generation that will happen to them related to religion from both sides? So I think, you know, when we talk to each other, we will listen to each other. We build a relation that we do care about each other, actually. And this is where you will see that whenever you speak, you will feel that the other side, you have an open heart and open mind. But if you ignore them, that's the issue. So, you know, sitting together, engaging in a dialogue, trying to face the challenges together, I think that will open many doors and venues for bringing us together more. It's interesting, Mania, that you refer to Nostra Aetate and the amazing transformation in terms of Jewish-Christian relations. And in there is a big difference between the history of Jewish-Christian relations and the history of Jewish-Muslim relations. I'm not saying Jewish-Muslim relations were always a picnic for everyone at every time and every place. But there is no comparison to the kind of demonization that Jews suffered under under Christianity. Islam never declared that we are in league of the devil, of the devil, that condemned to wonder, that have denied our historical birthright and connection. No, these ideas that actually have entered, have filtered into or insinuated themselves into the Muslim world as a result of the conflict in our region and have been simply exploited as weapons to score political points. That's precisely why it's so much easier to be able to advance the Jewish-Muslim relationship once we actually are able to overcome those immediate diplomatic political barriers, because we actually have so much more in common. Our way of life, our our teachings have so many parallels. And indeed, there were periods, of course, under Islam, where Judaism flourished. And we all point back to the famous golden age of Spain, where there was all cross-fertilation between Muslims, Christians, and Jews together. But it was primarily under Muslim rule, not exclusively, but primarily. So the potential is enormous and is great and can be far more rapid, I think. We see many initiatives from the UAE. There is the Forum for the Promotion of Peace in Muslim Lands, which is now promoting peace in the world under the leadership of Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayer, who is arguably one of the most important voices reflecting, if you like, a moderate Islamic approach, I would say the most noble values of Islam. You know that we, AJC, have a special relationship with Dr. Uh, Abdul Karim, Muhammad Abdul Karim al-Issa of the Muslim World League and of the uh, visit that we were privileged to organize taking him and Muslim leaders to Auschwitz just over a year ago and his very important statements. And We have therefore developed programs in that regard. In a way, these demonstrations, precisely as Dr. Ali was mentioning, of joint initiatives and collaboration and cooperation are more powerful than anyone coming along and saying, making a particular exclusive declaration, because it's precisely showing that friendship and collaboration, and it's increasing. And that's why these interfaith initiatives are so important to be able to sustain, to ensure that we are able to capitalize upon what we've done in the past. I'm so glad you mentioned the trip to Auschwitz because it sounds like that kind of shared experience can have a broader impact and can serve as a model for what else is possible. Yes, indeed. And I got enormous reports, responses from around the world to that. And I think it's important both in terms of educating people about Jewish history, but it's above all a testimony to mutual respect. Mm-hmm. and an understanding. There's a very famous Hasidic story. I won't tell you the whole story, but bottom line is that if we don't understand what gives one another pain, then we cannot truly love one another. 
And that, I think, is also what Dr. Ali was saying. I agree 100%. Unfortunately, we had the Abraham Accord during COVID-19. If we didn't have the restriction of COVID-19, you will see, you know, so many events engaging religious leaders related to this initiative, actually. And I am sure that once all these restrictions are over, you will see many events either in the UAE or in Israel that will bring religious leaders not only from the two nations, but from the whole region, actually. And that will promote Brahma Court and also will show the added value of peace, you know, to everyone. And the added value of travel, which we all miss and will welcome when the time comes. On that note, we will end. Dr. Al-Nuwami, Rabbi Rosen, thank you for sharing your very hopeful perspectives with us. And if you would like to subscribe to our podcast, get out your cell phone and text AJC space podcast to 52886. That's AJC podcast, two words, to 52886. Thank you for attending AJC Virtual Global Forum. And thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Thank you. Stay safe. I'm Maggie Fredman, and I'm American Jewish Committee's Deputy Director of Young Leadership. This year, we witnessed a resilience of college students across the country in the face of a global pandemic. For Jewish students, campuses continue to foster positive experiences, community building, and meaningful learning. Yet today's Jewish college students are faced with growing challenges, including mounting efforts to boycott or delegitimize Israel, a rising number of anti-Semitic incidents reported on campus, and an increase in anti-Jewish discrimination directed towards student leaders. And AJC works to support our students at each step. To give us a view from campus and help us understand today's challenges and opportunities, we are joined by two talented young leaders who took up the mantle of leadership on their own campuses. Julia Jassy is a current student at the University of Chicago and a co-founder of Jewish on Campus. Talia Rosenberg is a recent graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you for having us. It's an honor. Yes, thank you. I'm so glad to have you both. And let's get right into the view from campus. So each of you come from different campus environments and certainly are at different stages in your academic careers. But what you both share is your choice to create change. And that is a, a bold choice and one that deserves an enormous amount of credit. How did you decide to get involved with Jewish activism and Israel advocacy on campus? And Talia, why don't we start with you? Thank you. Well, really, I came from a very strong Jewish family. Both sides of my family have always felt very passionately about our Judaism and about our connection to Israel. And additionally, I went to Jewish day school for many years. So it was something I grew up with, something that was a constant in my life that was unquestionable, my support for Israel. But when I reached high school at a different school that was not a day school, I faced a lot of anti-Israel activism from close friends, friends that I had done work with on other political things before. And I felt a lot of confusion. I didn't know 
how to answer their questions. I didn't know the entire history dating back before 47 or from 47 to 67 or 67 to 2017. So there was a lot going on that I didn't know how to respond to. And because of that, I felt that I really needed to dig in and get the information so that I could be a proper advocate for Israel. And so by the time I got to college, that was one of my biggest goals, to learn how to be a good advocate for the state of Israel and for the Jewish people. So that's why one of the first clubs that I joined at Penn was the Penn Israel Public Affairs Committee. And additionally, another mm -hmm. club I joined later was Resetting the Table, which led dialogue within a range of the Jewish community politically and religiously about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And those are clubs that I have given a lot of my time to and I think have really helped me to be a fierce advocate for Israel and for the Jewish people at large. Mm -hmm. Julia, can you give us a sense of what your experience and what led you to take action? Yeah, first of all, thank you again for having me. It's truly an honor to be here. I had a little bit of a different experience. I come from Long Island, New York, which is a place where I always joke around that there are lots of Jews here, but saying that you're Jewish is like saying you play soccer. It's just a piece of you that no one really pays much mind to. But I come from a family where Israel was very integral to our existence. On my dad's side, I'm a child of a family who lost half a generation to the Holocaust. On my mom's side, I'm a child of a family of Jewish refugees to Israel who escaped ethnic cleansing in Iraq, Yemen, and Spain. So I come from a family who needed Israel to survive. So this, this has always been a very personal situation for me. And I remember, you know, I never really had to confront it in high school. And I came to college my first year. And my first real experience was I was in the busiest class building on campus. And there was a table outside canvassing. And I didn't know what it was for. There were people all around. And I saw a poster that said Israel. So I walked over to the table. thought it would be, you know, an Israel event. So I asked the guy at the table, what is this for? And I remember he said, it's, it's against the occupation. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, the occupation of Israeli occupying Palestine. And I remember in that moment feeling really helpless. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to respond. So I turned around and I walked away. I said, I'm not interested. And I remember feeling red and I remember feeling embarrassed that I didn't know how to defend something that was so important to my family, something that was so important to myself. And I felt really ashamed of that. So I decided that I needed to learn how to defend it. So I started reading books and I started watching lectures and I started reading articles. And that's when I got to meet other students from schools around the country and even around the world who were having similar experiences to me. You know, it's painted as a political issue, but Israel is more than that. It's the Jew among states. It's a scapegoat the same way that Jews are scapegoats. And when Zionism is being used as a way to mask anti-Semitism, I don't hate Jews, I just hate the Zionists. It affects all of us. I mean, we're all experiencing this individually. I actually want to pick up exactly on that point. So yeah. Thank you for raising it. From your perspective on campus today, I mean, hearing about what led you to understand what happened on campus, yeah. is, I think that an experience that many of our students share. Now that you're there and you have made that jump, and I think this is what you're getting to, yeah. can you share with us what do you think is the most persistent challenge in fighting anti-Semitism and anti-Israel sentiment on campus? And Julia, why don't you pick up there and we'll start with you and then Talia and we'll turn to you. Yeah, what makes anti-Semitism this enduring hatred, the world's oldest hatred, is that it constantly changes form. It's rooted in the idea of Jew, the Jew is the ultimate scapegoat. It's a really brilliant concept. You know, you have a problem in the world, you want someone to blame, you don't want to internalize that, just blame the Jews. 
and it changes its form every generation. So this new pernicious form of anti-Semitism we're seeing, anti-Zionism, saying that Israel has no right to exist. I've seen people say that, you know, recently with the recent clash between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, people saying that there's no such thing as an Israeli citizen, that all Israelis are born inherently guilty. You see this recycled blood libel that we've been seeing since back in, you know, Middle Ages Europe that is resurfacing with a new face. Instead of hating the Jew, you hate the Zionist. And I think that's really dangerous because people who aren't Jewish, people who haven't experienced it, won't know how to recognize it. So I think the biggest threat is if we're not able to educate those around us on what anti-Semitism looks like because it's constantly changing face, we won't be able to combat it as well. So the first step is to clearly outline what is and what isn't anti-Semitic so nothing is lost in translation. I think that is very much something that is pressing on campus. And like you said, I think that identification is so critical. Talia, I want to turn to you to get your perspective as well. What do you think is one of one or two of the most persistent challenges in fighting anti-Semitism and anti-Israel sentiment today on campus? Thank you. Well, I would definitely agree with Julia that I think the biggest problem around the world with fighting anti-Semitism is a lack of education and understanding. But for me personally on my campus, I have seen the biggest challenge to fighting both anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism is just apathy. And I think that at a place like Penn, where there's a lot to focus on, you know, pre-professionalism, your classes, and a million and 10 things that people are prioritizing, somehow fighting for your people and fighting for certain political movements just gets pushed to the bottom. And I think that that can be a very big problem when we see, you know, what we saw last month with Israel and Gaza, when students who haven't been trained to advocate are now pushed out into the real world beyond campus and are seeing this anti-Israel and anti-Semitic activism and they don't know how to respond. So I think that while a huge problem on most college campuses is facing this anti-Semitism and this anti-Israel sentiment on campus, and I would never want to go through that, a huge problem can also just be this apathy and then not being prepared when the moment comes to truly defend yourself and your people. So I think while educating is really important, I also think it's important to remind people where they come from, what they stand for, and to remember to continue to stand for that out in the real world. That actually is a perfect segue to turning to the recent violence in Israel, which you both uh, touched on. We have seen several student governments in academic departments draft and circulate statements of solidarity with Palestinians, many of which actually include very egregious accusations of ethnic cleansing, of genocide committed by Israel, and have a glaring omission of the thousands of rockets that Hamas had fired against Israeli civilians. How are students responding from your perspectives when their own academic departments and student representatives who are meant to represent them and speak for them are disseminating these one-sided extremist rhetorics? And what advice do you have for students who are faced with these types of bias resolutions? Julia, let us know from your perspective. We'll turn to you first. Yeah, I think right now students don't know how to respond. I think as a community, we've known there's been this buzzword, campus anti-Semitism. We've known it's a problem and we've kind of acknowledged it, but not done much to really confront it. And I think that we're seeing what the result of that is now. 
I've definitely seen a tremendous amount of it on my campus and through Jewish on campus, I've heard about it from other schools as well. And I think there's a really big difference between advocating for Palestinians and advocating against Israelis. And that's a lot of what we're seeing. We're seeing Zionists, we're seeing Israelis, we're seeing Israel being demonized to the point where, you know, in my own personal experience, I shared a story about, you know, I have family in Tel Aviv. There was a tremendous amount of rocket fire targeting civilians in Tel Aviv. And I shared a story about it on my Instagram and somebody responded to tell me that I was being toned up for even acknowledging my own family suffering. There's, I think, a scary amount of dehumanization of Israelis, which is, you know, the first step toward a dangerous rise in anti-Semitism. And so how do we confront that? I think the first thing that is dangerous is if we think that being quiet is the right thing to do. And I understand and I've been in the position where everyone around you is kind of engaging in rhetoric that is oftentimes libelous. You know, we've crossed the point of criticism of Israel here. We're getting into blood libel territory. You know, America's existed for over 200 years, has a really dangerous history of, of racism. And I've seen resolutions calling, you know, Israel the root of that, the state that's existed for 70 years as the root of police brutality and racism in the U.S. The resolutions that have happened at Tufts University kind of called deadly exchange, which claim that which is that's libelous because it's very clear to track the, the history of American racism. And that's kind of just one example. For students who are being faced with that, this yeah. idea that certain ideals that we might care about, things like racism, which are critical, which we all should be looking at, when those things are being bundled with having an anti-Israel stance, how can students separate those and say that, one actually is not, you know, this notion that both are bundled is just totally off base. How do you address that? Well, I think the first thing to realize is that you're not the only one who thinks that way, that there's so much of not only the Jewish community, but the larger community that agrees with you. But we're scared to talk about it because everyone else is saying things to the contrary. And we do face backlash when we do speak up. But the more of us that do speak up, the less this idea will be normalized. The more of us that do speak up, we can actually confront the real history and the true problems that America faces with racism that must be addressed in an honest and effective way. So I think that if we are vocal about the social issues in the United States that we care about, we continue to be vocal about those because they are important to us. And we're vocal about Israel and we're vocal about anti-Semitism. We tell others that it's okay for them to be vocal about both of these issues as well. And that's a really important thing to spread. Thank you for that. I want to turn to something actually that came up in both of your answers earlier, the role that social media has played in the recent escalation in Israel. So increasingly, social media provides an enormous platform for students. It allows for your perspectives to span far beyond your immediate campus, really to have a global impact. And with the recent escalation of Hamas-induced violence in Israel, We've seen rampant misinformation, anti-Semitism, and anti-Israel rhetoric spreading across social media to a degree that we had not previously encountered. What role can students play in weighing in on these events? And what do you say to students who feel overwhelmed and disappointed by the content they're seeing on their feeds and may actually be afraid to jump into the fray? Um, Talia, let's start with you. Thank you. Well, I would say one thing that some people might find controversial, and I think that it is that Jewish students, first and foremost, need to look out for their own mental health. 
So I think that if you're seeing a lot of content online that is giving you, you know, severe anxiety, making you very upset, I think it is okay to take a step back and take a break for a few days. I think it is so, so important to stand up for what you believe in. But I also think, you know, this is happening to you. It is happening to your people. And so it is your prerogative to decide when to take a break and when to step up. As for when to step up, I think that social media has never and will never be the forum to have this conversation. I think that it really is an information contest. So it is so important to help disseminate that correct information about Israel and to continue to put out informative resources. But I also think a great tactic is if you see a close friend sharing something and the first thought in your mind is, how could they possibly believe this? Maybe you text them on the side and you say, hey, let's have a conversation about this. Because the truth is, speaking to someone and having a real dialogue is always going to work better than commenting on their infographic. So I think while social media can be a really powerful tool, and we also need to learn how to utilize it, and I know Julia knows how to utilize it very well, and it's something that I'm always very proud of to see what Jewish on Campus posts, I think it's also important to recognize how can I really get to someone? And I think that people don't expect that when they put something on their story or on their feed, that you're gonna then go to them personally and say, let's have a talk about this. Because the truth is that friend that's posting, you know, Zionism is racism, or there should be more deaths on the Israeli side as there are on the side in Gaza. They're just doing it because it's a trend that they are hopping on because they believe it is the next social justice movement. And when you contact them personally, that's not something they're prepared for. So I think that that's really the best way to handle it is to have those conversations and be armed with the truth. Thanks for that. And you alluded to it, you know, Julia, I think you have a unique perspective here as well as one of the co-founders of Jewish on Campus and someone who themselves is quite vocal on social media. What do you have to say for what's going on and when is or is not the time to respond? Yeah, I think there are two ways of being an activist, whatever activist means. I think one way is what I do. It's, you know, I work for currently four different Jewish organizations. I'm really vocal on social media. I run Jewish on Campus, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to amplifying the voices of Jewish students, talking about anti-Semitism we're experiencing on campus, has a platform of almost 30,000 people, has over 1,200 story submissions. And that's one way to be a Jewish activist. And if you choose to be an activist in that way, I cannot implore you enough to do it with a community because doing this on your own is nothing that you should ever do. And like Talia had just mentioned, I think it's really important to prioritize mental health because burnout is real and you can't help your community. You can't be well within yourself. And it's really important to prioritize that. Something that I definitely reckon with a lot myself and everyone I know in this space reckons with a lot. But the other way to be a Jewish activist and the equally as important way, I would venture to say to be a Jewish activist, if not more important way, is to be a strong and vocal and proud Jewish person, is to wear your Megan David around campus, to wear your kippah, to go to Shabbat dinners, go to Hillel, go to Chabad, to not let the voices of intimidation stop you from doing what you were born to do, which is to be a loud and proud Jew. Because I'm of the belief that you cannot be a Jewish advocate if you don't really love your Judaism as a religion, as a culture, as a history, as a people. So remembering why you're doing this, why you're fighting, because you love where you come from, where your culture is in your heart. That is just as important, if not more important than any vocal, you know, online activism you can do. That is a beautiful point for us to end on. I want to close out this conversation on a hopeful note and looking towards the opportunities of being a Jewish student. So I have 
a question for both of you. We have a number of young people watching who are heading to campus or leaders for tomorrow who are high school students who themselves put in the work to build up their Jewish identity, be able to talk about Israel on campus. So as two leaders today, I'm gonna to ask you to share with us two things. The first is what makes you hopeful about being a Jewish student today? And the second, what is one piece of advice you have for Jewish students who are heading to college this fall? And Julia, why don't we start with you? Yeah, what makes me hopeful is this continued legacy of advocacy from the Jewish student perspective. I think a lot about the movement for Soviet Jewry, where 10,000 people were mobilized in Washington, D.C. by Jewish students advocating for the safety of the Soviet Jewish community. I think that's the legacy that we're trying to uphold, this legacy of not being quiet in the face of injustice, something that I hope to continue to be a part of. And, you know, my advice is it comes from a conversation I had with my rabbi last fall when I was kind of beginning to get involved with advocacy. I went to her, my Hillel rabbi, and I said, you know, I'm really upset. What's happening is hard. And someone made the joke to me recently, actually, it was Jewish Heritage Month just in the past. And a lot of anti-Semitism was coming. And I was like, come on, guys, stop being anti-Semitic on Jewish Heritage Month. And they said, well, this is our heritage. Anti-Semitism is a part of our history. And my rabbi said to me one time, she said, our history is not just this continued cycle of persecution. It's this continued cycle of resilience. And that's what we uphold. That's what we are. We're people who have survived so much and is still here and will always still be here no matter what we have to face. And that's the legacy that we're a part of. That's the tradition that we're a part of. And it's something I'm so proud to call my history. That is great. Talia, I'm going to turn to you to close us out. Well, first, I want to say, Julia, everything you say gives me chills. And that is part of what makes me hopeful is other students like you. And I think just the diversity of ways that one can get involved in the Jewish community on campus, whether that's religiously, politically, culturally, and within those, the million and 10 ways that you can get involved. I think that is what makes me more hopeful is that for each new day, there's a new way to be proud of your Judaism and a new way to express that. And in terms of a piece of advice going off of that, I would say, don't be afraid to explore all of your Judaism. I think, you know, some and really all sides of the political spectrum would have you put parts of yourself and your identity in a box and push it to the back of the closet. And I would say that my biggest piece of advice is to explore it all. Explore the particularism of Judaism, explore the universalism of Judaism, explore the secular culture, explore the religious culture, and don't let anyone tell you what parts of your identity are not on trend to be looking at today. So I would say that that's my biggest piece of advice. Well, I can speak for myself and I feel confident for all of those who are watching. You too are what make us hopeful about the Jewish future. I wanna thank both of our panelists for sharing their experiences with us today and for the leadership they bring to campus and beyond. Thank you both. To learn more about American Jewish Committee's work on campus and support our work, head to ajc.org slash youngleadership. Be sure to stay up to date as to what AJC is doing around the world by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AJC Global. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag people of the pod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.